be coming to this end of this sermon series that we started some months ago on prayer. Um, and this series has been a huge blessing uh, to my family and I. We have just been challenged on various levels uh, to mature in our understanding of prayer and its practice and how it applies to our lives. And I know that I've had an opportunity to speak with many of you, and you've said the same, that it's been so helpful to you individually and in your family and corporately as we gather as soul carers and as a community here on Sundays, uh, that it's been just a good and great help to you. And so I'm just so grateful that we've had this opportunity to look to God's word and consider what prayer is all about and that, uh, that Ajay has been, been able to kind of lead us through that. And I'm also just grateful that I've been able to have this opportunity just to be able to share with you and to participate in this series as it comes to an end. Um, you and I, we live in a real interesting period of history, right? We are living in a period of history where there are more choices and more decisions to make now than ever before, right? I mean, I'm talking about decisions about everything, decisions about every single thing. When my wife Sharon and I walk into our neighborhood Walmart, right, we have to choose between nine different brands of mustard. How in the world is that possible? I mean, mustard is just mustard, right? How could there be nine different types of mustard? But there are. There are 24 different types of soda. How is that possible? It is no longer possible just to walk into a Walmart and to pick up some bread. It's no longer possible because when I go into a Walmart, I have to choose between whole wheat and multigrain and nine grain and seven grain and every possible grain when I pick up bread. And I'm saying, listen, I just want some bread, right? If it tastes good with peanut butter and jelly, I'll take it. I mean, it is not that complicated. But when you walk into a Walmart, there are 50 choices to make. This is exactly why my wife doesn't send me to, to Walmart just to pick up a few things because it would take me forever. I mean, you would literally find me in aisle nine, just in a fetal position, just rocking back and forth because I can't choose between pickles, right? This is kind of the world that we live in. We live in a world where there are 50 million choices to make even when you walk into a Walmart. It's a lot of pressure. Shopping at Walmart is not easy. But this is the thing, right? When it comes to making decisions, you and I know that choosing between Coke or Pepsi isn't what keeps us up all throughout the night, right? That's not what we struggle with on a daily basis. That's not what we're kind of stressed out about. There are more important decisions that you and I have to make on a daily basis. These are the decisions that really matter, right? These are the decisions that affect some of the most important aspects of our life. Decisions like, where should I go to school? Or where should I work? What career should I choose? Or who should I marry? Or where should I live, right? I mean, our lives are marked by some of the major milestones of college and job and marriage and home, and all of us, every single one of us, want to make sure that we're making the best possible decision concerning our lives and our future. All of us do. That's natural. But if you're sitting here this morning, and you're a Christian, there's a chance that your experiences in decision-making haven't been any easier, right? Because all of a sudden, it's not just, where should I work? It's What's God's will for my career, right? It's no longer who should I marry. It's what's God's will for my marriage, 
And if we're being honest with ourselves this morning, some of us would confess that we're not sure at all. We have no clue what we even mean when we say finding God's will or where to even begin in actually finding his will. You see, finding God's will often seems confusing and ambiguous more than helpful or comforting to our lives. Because somewhere along the way, we find ourselves playing this guessing game with the creator of the universe, trying, not, trying hard not to misread his signals and miss out on our best life now, right? That's a lot of pressure. That's a whole lot of pressure, making sure that you're making the best decisions for your life and trying to figure out what this divine being is saying to you along the way. It's a lot of pressure. But I would say that it's undue pressure. It's unnecessary pressure. What if I told you this morning that finding God's will could actually be simple and that it doesn't have to be reduced to a guessing game that you play with God? That searching for God's will could be freeing instead of burdensome. That it could be life-giving instead of making you feel trapped by life. I say these things because it's actually what the Bible teaches, right? Finding God's will often seems confusing and ambiguous, not necessarily because we're asking the wrong questions, but actually because we're expecting the wrong answers. Let me say that again, right? Finding God's will often seems confusing and ambiguous, not because we're asking the wrong questions, but because we're expecting the wrong answers. I'll explain what I mean by that in a moment, but let's, let's actually begin just by praying together, okay? Father, I'm, I'm aware of the fact that both the preaching of God's word as well as the hearing of it requires supernatural involvement. So I'm praying this morning as I'm standing here reading from your word, as I'm explaining your word to our congregation. I'm praying that you would infuse my words with your spirit so that those who listen would hear and understand and be transformed by your word. We realize that none of these things can be done apart from you, and so we are utterly dependent on you to do these things. And so we're asking you that you would. Please hear our prayer. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So before I dig in uh, and kind of explain what this idea of finding God's will looks like, I want to just take a moment to explain what we actually even mean by God's will, right? What do we mean by God's will? A pastor named Kevin DeYoung actually wrote this really helpful book on God's will called Just Do Something, right? And it's been really helpful for me to help kind of think through God's will and even in the, the crafting of this sermon, it's been really helpful. And so he classifies this idea of God's will into three primary categories or three different understandings, right? He says, first, that we talk about things happening according to God's will, that things happen according to God's will. And some theologians call this God's will of decree, right? What this is basically saying is that everything that happens in this world, every single thing that happens in this world, happens according to God's sovereign plan. So, for example, in Ephesians 1.11, it says this. It says, in Jesus, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So what does that mean? It means that God works out everything in our lives. 
God works out everything in our lives from the biggest of pictures to the smallest of details according to his own good and sovereign purposes. What we're saying here and what the scripture is saying here is not just that God knows everything, but that he divinely causes things to happen, that he intervenes and causes things to happen, that nothing happens by accident or by chance, but that God has predetermined the very details of our life. And the most incredible example of this in the word of God's predetermined will is actually discussed in Acts chapter 2, right? Hear this. So Peter, one of Jesus' disciples, right? So Jesus has now just died and been resurrected and he's ascended into heaven. The church is just about to get started and we're, it's, it's Pentecost and the church is beginning and, and Peter is standing there delivering one of his first sermons and he says this in Acts chapter 2. He says, Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Did you just hear what Peter said? It's unbelievable, right? He says this, that the historical event of Jesus' death, the death of God's own son, took place according to God's gracious and predetermined will. Jesus dying on the cross for our sin wasn't just an accident or it wasn't a blip in God's plan. It wasn't just the idea of Jewish men who lived thousands of years ago. It was God's idea to crush his own son. And he planned it before the beginning of the world. It was God's idea. The crucifixion of Christ was God's idea. I know that opens up five million more questions but what I want us to see this morning is that God is not standing off at a distance somewhere, sort of just watching the world unfold. Instead, he is actively, intimately, and predeterminately, if that's even a word, predeterminately involved in all of the details of our life. And we see examples of that all throughout the Bible. God is intimately involved in all the details of our life, and he has predetermined what will happen all throughout history and for the future. So that's one way we talk about God's will, right? God's will of decree. Another way we talk about God's will is in terms of his commands, right? What does God want me to do? Theologians often call this God's will of desire, right? So in other words, we're referring to how does God desire for me to live? So for example, if I were to ask, does, is God's will for me to be generous or hoard up all of my money we would say that the Bible teaches us that it is God's will for me to be generous to others because God has been infinitely more generous to me than I could ask for, right? He has given me all that I need for life and for faith in Christ Jesus. And if that's true, then I need to be generous to those who are around me. Or if I were to ask, is it God's will for me to forgive Bill for sinning against me or should I try to get back at him, right? We would say... It is absolutely God's will for you to forgive, Bill, because you yourself and I have been a recipient of great forgiveness for sins that were much greater than how Bill has sinned against us. And if God has been that forgiving towards us for much deeper sins that we have committed against him, how could we not forgive Bill? And we could come up with a hundred examples of how God wants us to live. But what we're essentially saying here is that God's will for our life also includes his commands, right? 
These commands have been given to us in God's word, and they tell us how we should live. But this is the thing, right? So when most of us are talking about finding God's will, it's usually not whether or not I should commit adultery that we're struggling with, right? That's not kind of what's keeping up us up at night that we're wrestling with in our lives. Well, maybe some of us, but I'm saying that generally that's not what we're talking about. What we're talking about is that we're most likely talking about God's will of direction, right? What do I mean by that? When I started this sermon, I brought up some of the examples of decisions that we commonly wrestle with in life. Things like, where should I work, and who should I marry, and where should I live, and so on, right? And when we're asking those questions, what we're actually seeking is God's will of direction in my life. We want to know the individual specific plan for the who, the what, the where, the when, and the how of our lives. But what we should do is we should pause for a moment, take a step back, and ask a different question first. The question that we should be asking right off the bat is, does God have a secret will concerning my life, a secret will of direction for my life that he expects me to figure out before making a decision? Let me ask that again, right? Is there this secret will of direction that God has for our lives that he's expecting me or expecting you to figure out before we make a decision? And I would say, no. There is no such thing. There is no secret will of direction that he expects you and I to figure out before we make a decision. So hear me out. Let me break this down a little bit, right? Does God have a specific plan for our lives? I would say yes, absolutely. God's word tells us that he has a specific plan for our lives. Does he decree everything about our lives from the biggest picture to the most minute of detail? And we would say yes, absolutely. The Bible teaches us that he has decreed everything, that he has predetermined everything. But does God expect me to figure out those plans before my life, before I make any decisions? And I would say, no, absolutely not. The Bible doesn't teach that, that we need to figure out these things before we move forward. You see, I'm not at all saying that God isn't interested in your future or that, that he doesn't direct your path or he doesn't help you in making decisions. It's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is that finding God's will isn't like printing out directions on MapQuest where they're telling you exactly what turns to make and when you should be making them. But somewhere along the way, you and I have been convinced that we can know, or that even more, that we should know what God wants for us at every single turn along this path of life. And that if we make one, past, one possible wrong turn, if we make a wrong turn along the way, that we end up with a disappointed God and a subpar life. That's a lot of pressure. What if you and I make those wrong turns? What does that mean in terms of how God views us? Or what does that mean in terms of the quality or the experience of life that we will have? Are we disappointing him? Are we experiencing less than what we should be because we make a wrong turn? And what we're saying this morning, what I'm saying this morning, that God's word doesn't teach that, that it's actually not biblical, and that it can actually be harmful. This conventional idea of finding God's will of direction can be harmful for many reasons, and I want to share two, right? First, why this way of thinking about God's will is harmful is because it makes God out to be this sneaky and devious divine being, right? According to this view, this is what we're saying. 
God has a perfect plan for your life. He has a perfect plan for your life. He knows exactly what you should be doing, and he'll even hold you accountable for not making the right decisions. But he won't tell us what those plans are. Think about that. He knows everything about our lives, what we should be doing, when we should be doing them, but he won't tell us what those plans are. What kind of God would that be? What kind of God would we be serving? Definitely not a good one, and definitely not one that wants what's best for us. Instead, it seems like he just likes to play games, right? He just wants us to kind of walk around life, groping into the air, hoping that we make the right decisions and choose what's best, but not give us direction. The second reason why this conventional idea of finding God's will is harmful is because it causes us to focus on things that are less important, right? So many of our issues with finding God's will focus on non-moral things, right? It's like whether I should go to Temple or to Drexel or whether I should buy a home or rent an apartment. And though those details are important to God, they are not of the greatest importance to God. I need us to hear that, right? Where you work, where you live, is not the most critical concern for God. Instead, Pastor DeYoung says this. He says, the most important issues for God are moral purity, theological fidelity, compassion, joy, our witness, faithfulness, hospitality, love, worship, and our faith. But instead, we tend to focus on the specifics that God doesn't mention in the Bible while ignoring the things that he has made very clear. So where does that leave us, right? If this conventional way of thinking through God's will is actually harmful and wrong, then what is the correct way? Well, we find our answer in Matthew chapter 6, what Saba read for us. I'm going to read that again. Matthew chapter 6, starting at verse 25, it says this. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil, toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory, was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God, and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you as well. So what's this passage telling us, right? I think it's fairly clear. It's fairly straightforward. Jesus is saying, listen, I don't want you to be anxious or worried about the future. You see, anxiety or worry isn't just a bad habit or the way that you and I are wired and that we can't do anything about it. Anxiety and worry actually stems from unbelief. Anxiety and worry stems from a lack of faith. Jesus, Jesus clearly states this in verse 30, right? When he calls us those of little faith. 
You see, worry is a spiritual issue that needs to be fought with faith. And this passage is teaching us that we need to overcome anxiety and worry in our lives by believing three things. So Jesus is saying you need to believe three things. First, that God is sovereign. Second, that God is good. And third, that God is sufficient. Right? So let's consider that first, that God is sovereign. The question is, do you and I believe that? Do we believe that God is in control of every single thing in this universe? A theologian named R.C. Sproul does a good job in explaining this idea of God's sovereignty. And he's saying, listen, if God is in control, if what we're saying is that God is in control of everything in this universe, does that mean also that he is in control of every single molecule in this universe? And listen to what he says. He says, don't you realize that if there is one molecule in this universe running around loose outside the scope or the sphere of God's divine control and authority and power, then that single maverick molecule may be the grain of sand that changes the entire course of human history, that blocks God from keeping the promises he has made to his people. For if there is one maverick molecule, it would mean that God is not sovereign. If there is any element of this universe that is outside of his authority, then he is no longer God overall. Hear that. If God is in control of every single molecule in this world, then surely he has control over things like what we will wear or what we will eat or where we will live or where we will work. In fact, a few chapters down in Matthew chapter 10, Jesus teaches that even the, the hairs on our head are numbered, right? Maybe not a big deal for me, but what we're saying here is that, that Jesus is saying, listen, nothing in this world is outside of God's control and that he knows everything about us and our needs and that there's nothing that he doesn't have control over. But here's the thing, right? God's knowledge of all things and his control over all things should only be a comfort to us if he's also good, right? Because if he's in control over all things and he knows all things, but he's evil, then that would be a problem for us. That would be a huge problem for us because then he would be out to get us instead of being for us. But what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6 is, is just that, that he is good, that he is indeed good, that we can be assured of his goodness. And do you know how we can be assured of his goodness? Because he says, even the birds of the air and even the lilies of the field don't need to be worrying about what they will wear or what they will eat because God provides for even their needs. And God's saying, listen, if, if these things that have such very little value in this world, if God cares for their needs and provides for them, how much more does he care about the ones that he has created in his own image? That idea of being created in God's image is given to no one else between, but besides humans, right? You and I are the only ones that can claim that we've been created in God's image. And if he cares about these worthless things like grass and birds, how much more does he care about the ones that he has created in his image? 
If you want to know how good God is, if you want to know how much he's for you, all you need to do is look to the cross. The prophet Isaiah says this, that it was the Lord's will to crush Jesus. It was the Lord's will to crush Jesus and to cause him to suffer and to do that for your sake and my sake and for our good. It was God's will to allow his son to take on the sins of the world and to be put to death in order that you and I can know God and enjoy him forever. The Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 8, verse 32 says this. He says, He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? And Paul is absolutely right, isn't he? He's absolutely right. If God did not hesitate to provide for us in our greatest of needs, the salvation of our souls, if he wasn't hesitant to provide for us in the greatest of our needs, then why do we worry about him providing for us thing, for things like a job or, or our career or our spouse? You and I can trust him with our lesser needs because he's proven himself to be faithful concerning our greatest need. Brothers and sisters, God is not only sovereign, he is also good. So good that he took those who were his enemies and made them into his children. And if this good God is in control of our future, then why do you and I have to worry? And finally, we overcome worrying by believing that God is sufficient. Listen to what Jesus says. He's saying, listen, stop worrying about what you'll wear or what you'll eat or where you'll live or who you'll marry. Instead, you know what you should be doing? You should seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Why? Because God's will for your life and for my life isn't centered on food and clothing and house and spouse. It's actually centered on himself. Jesus is saying, listen, Food and clothing are definitely necessary, right? But at the end of the day, your greatest need is Jesus, right? What profits a man to gain the whole world if he what? Loses his soul, right? God knows what our needs are even better than we know them ourselves. So instead of worrying about our future, we need to seek first the kingdom and his righteousness. But maybe you're sitting here and maybe you've gone to church all your life or maybe you're hearing this for the first time. But maybe you're sitting here and you're saying, okay, that's great, but what does that even mean, right? What does it mean for us to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness? I think that seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness means living with wisdom. Remember, right? God doesn't tell us about our future, nor does he expect us to figure things out before we make a decision. But what he does expect us to do is to trust him and to be wise, Listen to what God's word says about wisdom in Proverbs. If you want to open with me to Proverbs chapter 2, looking specifically at verses 1 through 6. This is Proverbs 2. It says, My son, if you accept my words and store up my commands within you, turning your ear to wisdom and applying your heart to understanding, indeed, if you call out for insight and cry aloud for understanding, and if you look for it as silver and search for it as hidden treasure, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. So what does it mean to live with wisdom? 
Wisdom is knowing God and doing as he commands, right? Wisdom is knowing God and doing as he commands. And the Proverbs tells us how we are supposed to live with wisdom. He says this, right? He says, first, store up his commands. Second, turn your ear to wisdom. And then finally, call out for insight. So what does that mean? He says, basically what he's saying here is, we need to know God's word, right? We need to know God's word. We need to eat up God's word. The second thing we need to do to live with wisdom is to seek advice from godly people, right? The third thing that we need to do is ask God directly through prayer. So let's break that down for a moment, right? Let's think about what we mean by eating up God's word. The Bible is not a case book, right? So it doesn't give us specific answers concerning who we should date or where we should live, right? It doesn't say Temple or Drexel or Jane or Sally. It doesn't say those things. That's because what God wants us to do is more than just live this to-do list for life and, and check things off that he has said that we should be doing. Instead, he wants us to be transformed. So let me give you an illustration, right? In the latter part of my career at college, I was struggling with this major, major addiction, right? I was addicted to buying Air Jordans, okay? And I'm serious. Like, you may be laughing right now, but I'm absolutely serious. You want to know how serious I am? I owned over 70 pairs of Air Jordans in a five-year span of my life. Because I worked at the Athlete's Foot on the Welshman Boulevard, right? And I was constantly just surrounded by, by Air Jordans. They were everywhere. I mean, they had new shipments all throughout the year, and I was constantly seeing them as they came into the, the inventory room. And I, had to, I was the one that was unpacking them and, and putting them up on the shelf. And so I was constantly surrounded by Air Jordans. It would, it would be like an alcoholic working as a bartender. It's a bad idea, right? Like, I should not be working at the athlete's foot, but that's what I did for five-plus years of my life. And I knew everything, everything about Air Jordans. I mean, you could literally put a blindfold around my eyes and place a pair of Jordans in my hand, and I can just feel it, and I can say, these are the Air Jordan 4s. They were created in 1988. They came out in blue and white and black and red, and they were... This is what he, Jordan did as a major milestone while he was wearing these sneakers. I knew everything that there was about Air Jordans. And I'm not even exaggerating. That's what's sad about my illustration is I'm, I'm being completely serious. Like literally, if one of you are wearing Air Jordans right now, put a blindfold on me and give it to me in my hand. And I'll tell you exactly what year they were created. I'm being serious. I was so consumed with Air Jordans that I lived and breathed these, these sneakers. In fact, when Sharon and I first started dating, I gave her this chart. I'm not, again, I, I feel like I'm, I hope I, I wish I was lying, but I'm not. I gave her this chart that listed all the different Air Jordans on there and pictures. And ask her now. Ask her what the Air Jordan 7 looks like, and she'll tell you exactly what they look like. I was consumed, and it affected everything about my life and even the people in my life. But I think that's what Solomon's saying here, even in Proverbs as well, is that that we need to eat up God's word in the way that I was eating up Air Jordans, that we need to so immerse ourselves in his word that his thoughts become our thoughts and his ways become our ways and his affections become our affections. And do you know why we should be doing this? Because it's God's will for us in our lives. More than you knowing where you should be working or who you should be marrying, God wants you to know him more than any of those details. And in fact, in knowing him better, you and I will have the wisdom that we need 
to make decisions concerning things like our house and our work and our spouse. Secondly, living with wisdom means seeking advice from godly people, right? We say that a lot at Seven Mile Road, that the Christian life wasn't met, meant to, lead, to be lived in isolation. We're not just meant to be living alone. God gave us community in order that we would encourage one another and depend on one another and learn from one another and instruct one another. We, gave, we have been given community for our good and for the good of others as well. And so when we're making decisions concerning our life, it is absolutely wise for us to seek the advice of godly men and women. It's not just because majority rules or that I need to ask every single godly person that I know for advice before I make a decision. But when God's word doesn't give you specifics like Temple or Drexel, it is wise for us to seek the advice of others who love God and also want to be obedient to him. Other godly men and women help us live life with wisdom. And finally, living with wisdom demands that we pray, right? But here's the question. What do we actually pray for? Because we've already said that God isn't interested in telling you the specifics concerning your future, because that's not what he's declared to be the most important thing for your life. Instead, he wants you to know him and become more like him. So one thing you should be praying for is illumination, that God would help you so that when you're reading God's word, you're not just glossing over what you're reading, not understanding what it's saying, but that he would give you what you need to understand God's word and not just understand, but to apply it to your life. Pray for illumination. God's word wasn't just given to us so that we can check it off of a list of things that we should be doing on a daily basis. His word gives us the opportunity to know him deeper and to love him more as a result. And then we should be praying for the things that we already know to be God's will, right? So you already know that right motives in your decision making is what God's will is for your life. So pray for that. Pray that you would have an attitude of trust and obedience because trusting and obeying is what God's will is for your life. Pray that you would be humble and teachable. Because all these things describe to us God's will for our lives. So ask him. Ask him to make it a reality in yours. So how does all of this translate into real life, right? Let me give you a simple example from my own life. You know, I've been currently living in just, just this hectic um, season of life. Life has been more busier for me now than ever before. And I know that <clears throat> busyness is relative, right? Because some of you are constantly boarding flights and going from place to place, and you're constantly on the road. And so compared to your business, my business doesn't seem like a lot. But for me, it has been, right? It has felt like a lot is on my plate right now. My job at PBU, my day job, is, uh, has been more demanding recently than ever before. And I've been working with our soul care groups here at the church and participating in elder track and all while trying to love and to serve my family well. Now, don't get me wrong, right? So none of these things are bad. They're all great. But I've been having a hard time balancing all of these areas of life. And I'm convinced that something needs to change, right? The question is, what do I do? What does God's will concerning my situation look like? Because it's not like anything on my plate is inherently evil or bad or that it's against God's commands. But I do know that it's not sustainable, that I can't continue moving forward like this. So I feel like it's been a good opportunity for me to make a decision concerning my future using wisdom. 
And so that's what, I, that's what I've been trying to do, right? So I've been looking at God's word. And though it doesn't say anything outright, like continue working at PBU in, in Philippians 2, or it doesn't say work at Walmart instead, it doesn't say any of that, it has been clear about other things, like that my primary role in life, apart from being a child of God, is to be a husband, a good husband, and a faithful father. That at the end of the day, that serving my family comes before my job or any other responsibility that I have in life. God's word has also instructed me that I'm not supposed to be living this insular life, right? Caring only about myself or only about my family, but that I'm supposed to be committed to the, the body of Christ and that I'm supposed to be living life on mission. So without giving me any specific details about the what, the when, or the where about my decisions, God has been, God's word has been instrumental in providing me clarity to the various callings and the decisions that I have to make in my life. I've also been talking to godly people, right? I've been talking to my wife, and I've been talking to my folks, my, my, uh, the folks in my soul care. I've been talking to uh, my brothers in my elder track. I've been asking these people for advice, seeking from them wisdom as to what I should be doing. And they've been praying for me, reminding me of the things that I need to hear. They've been helpful in helping me to see the things that maybe that I'm not seeing for myself, helping me to kind of realize the things that, that maybe I'm blind to and expose those things so that I would make a decision that is honoring to God. And so I've been asking godly people. And finally, I've been praying. I've been praying that I would have right motives in whatever I decide, right? I've been praying that, that God would help me to love my wife as Christ has loved the church and his word has instructed me to do so. I've been praying that I wouldn't make my decisions based off of fear or by pride, that I wouldn't just be doing these things, whatever I'm doing, for selfish gain, but that it would be honoring to God. I've been praying that I would remember God's faithfulness to me all throughout my life that he has been faithful to me for everything that I have needed all throughout my life, and if that's true, that I can trust him once again to be faithful in this situation. You see, I'm not feeling the need or the pressure of having to know all the details before I move forward. I don't feel that pressure. Instead, what I'm doing is I'm using what I do know about God and his commands to provide me with wisdom in figuring out what I should be doing. That's just one simple, simple example. But these truths about what it looks like to live with wisdom can be applied to any single situation in life. So let me close this morning by quoting Pastor DeYoung once more. He said this. He said, God's will for our life is simple, it's hard, and it's easy. Okay? He says, God's will for our life is simple. Simple because there are no secret plans that we need to discover before we do something. God's will for our life is hard. Hard because it requires denying ourselves, obeying God, and living for others. And God's will for our life is easy. It's easy because all that we need to know concerning God's will is found in him and his commands. So let's listen to what Jesus told us, right? He said, stop wasting our lives by worrying about the future, by being anxious and overcome by the decisions that you need to make. Instead, let's place, let's place our faith in God, who is sovereign and good and sufficient. God demonstrated his faithfulness to us in sending Jesus so that our greatest need, 
the salvation of our souls would be provided for. And if that's true, if that is indeed true, then what you and I need more is Jesus. And then we need to trust that all these other things will be added unto us as well. Let's pray. Father, I'm praying this morning that you would remind us of the gospel, that you are a good God, that you have always been good, that before the creation of this world, that you had a plan in store for us, for us to be redeemed and reconciled to yourself, that you decided that you would send your son who would die on the cross for us, for our sins, that he would carry that weight on his shoulders, and that he would do that so that we would be able to know you and enjoy you forever. And that we could rightly see that you are our greatest delight. That there is no greater thing in our life than knowing you and being known by you and making you known. Father, you know our frame. You know the things that, that we struggle with and the things that we want to make decisions concerning. And we know that many of these things are good things, like where to go to school and what job that we should be working and who I should be marrying and whether or not you want me to marry. All those are good questions. And we know that you're not out to get us. You're not trying to make our lives confusing, that you have given us all that we have needed for life and for faith. I'm praying that in the areas where anxiety and worry overcome us, that we would consider what it is that we don't believe about who you are and what you have done for us, that we would be returned to the gospel and be reminded of your goodness your sovereignty, your sufficiency for us in all the areas of our life. And that we could trust you because you have always been faithful and that you have provided for us our greatest need and that we know that if you have done that for us and we're not hesitant, that we can trust you for the smallest of our needs. For myself and for the folks who are sitting in here, I'm praying, God, that in the areas of our life where we are anxious and worrying and for the things in our life that we need discernment and need to know your will, I'm praying that you would help us to consider what your word says to us about knowing you and, and being transformed by you. That you would provide for us godly people that could give us advice and show us things that we can't see for ourselves and that we would have the confidence to come before you and ask you for wisdom because you love us and you have said that you are willing and able to give us wisdom when we ask. So we're holding on to your promises, trusting that you are always faithful to the things that you have said to us. So please hear our prayer and help us to love you more than all the other things that we are so consumed by. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.